Um, you guys, I don't really have any announcements this morning. That doesn't mean nothing's going on. There are super great things going on all over the place. Um, I do want to give a huge, huge thank you to those that have donated, given to Vision House and the Nourishing Network. Um, we got to give um, food out this week at Cedar Way, and it was really beautiful. And then something really special that happened um, that I want to tell you about, and many of you have given donations to um, help with lo local missions and just wherever we might see it fit. And there are a couple of ladies, food service workers at Cedar Way. And every time they talk to each other, there's just like this, I don't know, something in my heart that just kind of opens a bit. And I just go, life hasn't been super good to them. One of the um, ladies, she's older and has battled cancer and it has caused her teeth to all fall out. And so she was just saying in a very happy spirit, like, I don't know what I'll do when we don't wear masks anymore because I think people will be afraid of my teeth and I can't afford to get dentures. And there's just something about that where I went, man, life isn't fair. And so um, we got to kind of bless them with gift cards. And we didn't say it was from us. We didn't even say it was from the church. We just, I gave it to the guy who kind of leads things there and said, just don't mention us. I just don't want them to feel like they owe us something every time we come. And and so it's kind of around the corner doing some things, counting some things, and they got these gift cards, and they just started crying with each other and saying, who would do this? Who, like, who would do this? And they were begging the gentleman, please tell us who did this so that we can thank them. And so I just want to thank you for loving them that way. They are probably people that don't get unexpected kindness their way a whole lot. And so it's just a really beautiful thing to be able to love them in that in this hard season and so I just want to thank you on behalf of our church for your generosity and giving to different things that allows us to see needs in our community and do something really small I mean that's not going to buy her dentures um, but it tells her that someone sees her and that she's known and that she's loved in some way so um, that's the announcement that I have for you. We love it when you fill out your online communication cards, even when you're sitting here. If you have prayer needs, you have people that you know that are suffering around you, and we could wrap around them in some way. We want to know about that. And the best way to do that is to go to brookviewchurch.com and click on the contact us, and there's an online communication card slot there, and you can fill that out. So that's all that I have for you, and hit it, Jason. I said last week, there's nothing like Gregorian chant to get your juices flowing, huh? Well, you guys, this morning, uh, before I get into the message, I want to let you guys know something that's happening around here. Um, after being on staff at Brookview the last year and a half, Casey would love to keep doing what he's doing, but shift to doing it as a volunteer. So, 
His primary areas have been like filling in and giving messages and being on the teaching team here, uh, working on maintaining the facility and overseeing that, and then kind of uh, leading the young adults in our church. And Casey wants to continue to do that stuff. So he wants to continue to be on the teaching team. Um, he will continue to give messages like he has been. Um, he wants to continue leading his young adults group and, and stay in and, and continue help leading his men's group and continue to help with all of the same facility stuff, but all as a volunteer. And so um, Casey has been exploring working for the same company as his two brothers. Steve, Casey's older brother, has been doing electrical work with this company for, for quite a while, and Tony is going to be joining him next week in that. Um, and so Casey is having conversations with that same company, and he would be learning the trade of heating and air. What do we call that? HVAC. HVAC, thank you. Yeah. I'm just a dumb pastor. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how buildings are put together. <laughs> uh, but I, I want to say... Um, just point out, this is a decision that Casey is making for himself. And there is absolutely, if you're wondering, please do not wonder. There is no bad blood between uh, Casey and I. This was his first ever like paid role in church ministry. And he's just feeling like he wants to explore something else. He still loves ministry, right? He still loves this church. He still loves the family that we are a part of together. And he wants to continue serving here, but obviously it will be in a decreased capacity to some degree. But I am really thankful for the time that we've had him on our staff, and I'm excited about the role that he will continue to play as a volunteer. And some of you that know, you know that Casey has been a really special person to me for a long time. Um, And I met him when he was in high school. He was just a punk. He was a sophomore in high school at Mount Lake Terrace. His brother says he's still a punk. Um, and, and so I watched him come to Christ, and I watched him grow in Christ. And then Jen and I, as he stepped into more and more leadership, we recognized that he had some unique gifts. And so we really encouraged him to try to develop those and maybe try Bible college. And he did, and that took him all the way to Australia, but we, we kept in touch through all of that, and I just loved watching him uh, continue to grow, and so it has been a ton of fun working with you, and it's, it, 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 like, Casey is my friend, and he's in some ways my protege, and uh, you guys, I love him like I always have, um, but this does mean that we won't be paying a salary for him moving forward, and so that means also that we will have our eyes open for future staff. Um, that might end up being divided into multiple part-time people. We're not quite sure how that's going to look. But we definitely need additional staff, and we will eventually find it. But that's a conversation for a completely different day. In the meantime, you guys, we, we love Casey, and we love Kaylin, and we're so glad that you guys are here. And um, they will continue to serve and be present like crazy. But um, I just want to invite them to make their way up, and I just want to ask you guys to, to join me in praying for them, because transitions can be hard. All right. Will you guys just, if you, if you just kind of agree with this, just hold your hands out. Um, and if you get tired, you know, switch hands. 
or just consider it adult workout, whatever you want to do. But God, I thank you for these two, and I thank you for the way that they met at Hillsong in Australia, um, Kaylin pursuing worship and the leading of worship, Casey pursuing whatever would come his way as a result of it. And I thank you for the time that they've been here, and I thank you for the time that they will continue to be here. I thank you for the way that, that this church has become more and more a home for Kaylin. Um, and, and I pray that that would just continue to grow more deeply. And I pray that as they work through the season of finding other employment and, and figuring out what that looks like and adjusting schedules and adjusting routines and all of that, God, I pray that you would bless them deeply. I pray that their marriage would grow in intimacy and, and just their ability to, to serve one another. And I pray as well that, um, that you would just guide them into deeper relationship with you, both as individuals and together, and then together with this community, together with all those who, who want to know you, Jesus. And so, God, would you just pour your blessing out of them, help us to love them well, and help them to transition through all of this stuff as smoothly as possible. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Yeah, man. Oh, wait, wait, wait. We have a small, this is very insignificant and not appropriate to the, what you guys have given, but a small token of thanks. All right. We're in this series on Scripture. This is week two. And um, some of you may know that shortly after the voyage of Christopher Columbus to America, there was a brilliant mind back in Europe named William Tyndale, um, scorchingly handsome man. And uh, uh, Tyndale was a linguist and a professor at Cambridge University. And as a linguist, he became fluent in all kinds of languages, Italian and French and German and all kinds of stuff, including Greek and Hebrew the two primary languages of the texts of the Bible. And so Tyndale was then enabled to read the Bible for himself. And he was so taken by it that he came to believe something that was crazy at the time, that the Bible should be translated into the languages of the people so that they could read it for themselves. Crazy. Now, this is a no-brainer for us, but in England, it was actually illegal to translate the Bible into English. So Tyndale fled to Germany to join the Reformation movement, and there he translated the text into English for the first time. And with the backing of a very well-to-do patron and the new technology of a printing press, Tyndale smuggled 18,000 Bibles back over the channel into England. And followers of Jesus would hold secret meetings in their homes where they would find somebody who was literate, and in a hush, with a whisper, they would read the Bible. So picture this. They were all hearing the Bible read out loud in a language they could understand for the first time. Before that, all they knew was the Catholic Mass, okay, which was in Latin, not in English, like Latin, a language that they didn't understand. All they knew was the Latin mass and the images of biblical ideas that would be portrayed on stained glass windows. Now, King Henry VIII found out about Tyndale's Bibles, and he was enraged. So through a covert source, he bought up 6,000 copies and had them burned on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. 
Can you imagine burning 6,000 Bibles on the steps of a church? King Henry was a Christian. Okay, That's how far gone it was. And then he passed a new law saying that all Tyndale's Bibles were to be destroyed upon contact and anyone found with one was to be put to death. Eventually, Henry sent a spy across the English Channel okay, into Europe to befriend Tyndale, who then betrayed him. Tyndale fell for the ploy, was arrested, and after a year of being tortured to recant and change his mind, he refused and was burned at the stake. Witnesses to his execution report that his last words were a prayer. God opened the king of England's eyes. And famously, a few years later, King Henry changed his mind. And he allowed the Bible to be translated into English for all to read. Now, all of this raises a question. What is it about these ancient writings? Why are some of the greatest luminaries of human history willing to suffer and die to make them available for you to read? And some of the most powerful leaders of history willing to kill and destroy just to keep them out of your hands? But why is it that so many of the great empires of history, from the Roman Empire to the British Empire to Nazi Germany to Soviet Russia, have all had a censorship ban on the Bible and its teachings, if not made them full-on illegal? What is it about this collection of ancient writings that is such a threat to those in power, but so compelling to so many? And that, in turn, raises another question. What exactly is the Bible? Well, let's look at what Jesus had to say in Luke chapter 4. We started last week by saying, let's, let's have as our foundation for our understanding of the Scriptures, Jesus and what he thought. So this is what Jesus had to say in Luke chapter 4. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues. Why? Because Jesus was a rabbi. So he would go to synagogues, he could just show up unannounced, and they would invite him to teach. So everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Okay, so part of the, the custom of synagogue was a long reading from the scripture. But notice that Jesus was not handed here a copy of like the whole Old Testament. He was handed the scroll of Isaiah. Now, why not the whole Old Testament as a book? Because the scriptures only existed on scrolls. And each part of the Old Testament was on a separate scroll. Okay, unrolling it, the scroll of Isaiah, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. A rabbi would teach from a sitting position. He's getting ready to teach. It says, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Can you guys imagine sitting through a teaching of Jesus? 
Much better than this one. Hey, don't laugh. You're supposed to say, no, Jason, you're just as good. Okay, so he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that word fulfilled that we just read is the same word that we looked at last week. It's the same word that he used at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, talking about what he came to do in Matthew chapter 5. He said he did not come to abolish the scriptures, but to fulfill them. And the idea is that the story of the scriptures, the entire Old Testament in the day of Jesus, would come to pass in and through Jesus. So notice, because this says a ton, it says a ton about what the Bible is and what it isn't. Jesus reads in this story, he reads a prophetic oracle from the 8th century BC, okay? Like more than 700 years before he came to life. And it is in the form of a poem, and he reads it as if it is a story in search of an ending. And he sees himself as the climax to the plot of that story. What I want to do today is to address the question, what exactly is the Bible? And there are a ton of things that we could say that would all be true and good, but I I recently came across a a short definition that, you guys, I, I love. I think that it's true, and I think that it's good, but I also think that it is super, super helpful. And here it is. You guys ready for this? What is the Bible? Here it is. The Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. Now, I think this is a simple and yet very profound definition. And so today, what I'd like to do is consider this definition one piece at a time. So part one, the Bible is a library of writings. You guys, we often think of and refer to the Bible as a book. And the reason we tend to do that is because it's all bound up and put together in a single book. But it's actually more accurate and more helpful to think of it as a library. Um, Did you know that it wasn't actually put together the way that it is now, like a book, until about 1,500 years after Jesus? It took the English Reformation, it took Tyndale and the technology of the printing press and for literacy to become more widespread. Prior to that, the biblical texts were kept in something resembling a library. Most often they were contained in 24 separate scrolls, one of which was Isaiah that Jesus read from that day. And so for us, it's much better to think of the Bible as a library than a book because it can have a profound effect on how we read it. You come at a library, like think of Seattle Public Library or whatever, with a very different set of expectations and assumptions and tactics for engaging it than you do a book. A book usually has one genre, like it's novel or it's memoir or it's poetry or it's textbook or it's history or a whole host of other genres. But a library has it all. A a book usually has one author. A library has, has books by many, many authors. A book is written in a specific time and culture. A library has many books that spend many, span many times and many cultures. And when you think about it, the Bible was written by many different authors 
They used a wide variety of literary genres. They wrote over a 1,000 to 1,500 year span, uh, and, and, and it spanned many locations and cultures and even languages. When we approach a library containing a wide variety of literature, we naturally adopt different strategies for reading depending on the genre, right? I mean, you think about it, like you'd read a nonfiction work on World War II very differently from a, like, a, a book filled with Walt Whitman or Robert Frost poetry, right? Like you'd, you'd read a physics textbook very differently from the Chronicles of Narnia, You'd read Dr. Seuss very differently from a classic like Charles Dickens. And now, why, are, why all of those literary works, while they do convey some truth, they all convey truth in their own way. They do it in a very different way from one another. So we naturally approach them using very different tactics. This is obvious. We do it without thinking about it because we recognize this is a library. But if we see the Bible as a book, and we don't take the library approach with it, we encounter very different kinds of literature and don't adopt, adopt different tactics. We try to read straight through it as if it's a Hunger Games novel. And then it's bound to get confusing uh, real fast. So it might be easier to see it as a library when you think of it. This, this would be so much easier for us if it was all still contained in scrolls then we could easily feel like that it was written, we, you know, we would know that it's written by dozens of authors and they all employed different sorts of literary genres, history, biography, poetry, prophecy, apocalyptic literature, parables, personal letters, and on and on. Now the Bible is true, okay, all of it conveys truth, every bit of it, but to get to that truth accurately, it's vital that you read each part of it according to its genre. You, that you read it how the author intended it to be read. Right? Okay. Let, let me give you a very recent example uh, of this to illustrate. A few weeks ago, Jen was, I think right here on this stage, teaching uh, Kids Church. And uh, by the way, we have in-person Kids Church every Friday. Um, and so Jen was teaching the kids, and she was, she was using the parable of the rich fool. Okay, let me, for those of you, let me just refresh your memory. Let me read, read the, the parable of the rich fool. Here it goes. Someone in the crowd said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to, invite the, to divide the inheritance with me. Right, so this guy comes to Jesus and he wants him to settle a family, uh, you know, inheritance dispute. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, to the whole crowd, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus of grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? 
This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. So after reading the parable to the kids, one little girl was very disturbed. And she raised her little hand, and she asked, Teacher Jen, is that a true story? Like, did that, like, really happen? And she seemed really disturbed that the man died in the story. So Jen, rather than just jumping on it, says, hey, good question. What do you guys think? And she let the kids discuss it and wrestle through it. And the consensus of the kids was, Jesus never lied, so it must be a true story. Another little boy tacked on, and I love the, the, the zeal of this. He said, because the Bible is the word of God, it's all true. And the consensus of the kids was, this story literally happened. And that's when Jen stepped in and she explained some things. Because this is what happens when we don't read according to literary genre. Jesus didn't intend to communicate this as literal history. That's not the point. It's a parable. But if we don't read it considering its literary genre, then it's really easy to misunderstand the point. Sometimes people will ask, hey, do you guys at Brookview, pastor, do you read the Bible literally or metaphorically? That's not even a good question. Uh, It's not a good question because the Bible has a ton of both, right? So the literary genre determines which approach we take. What was the author intending to convey and what literary conventions were employed to convey it? We need to consider each book according to its genre because the Bible is, is not a book. It is a library of writings and next that are both human and divine. Now, I referenced a verse last week that gives us insight into Jesus' view of Scripture. One time, Jesus quoted a verse from the Old Testament this way. He said, David himself, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, and then boom, there's a quote from the Psalms. Okay, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And in this little aside, we see Jesus' view of Scripture as both human and divine. He doesn't read the Old Testament as like some sort of human invention. He doesn't say like David speaking his own opinions, or David making crap up, or David with his narrow view of God and built-in prejudice. But he also doesn't read it as a kind of mindless dictation. Like, when David woke up from his trance, there was drool on the papyrus and a word from God, and it said. Jesus says, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit. He he sees it as this beautiful, divine, human collaboration. So the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human. Human. Now, theologians often call this the incarnational model of Scripture. In the same way that Jesus was not just divine or just human, but he was divinity and humanity in the same place, Scripture is both God breathed and a work of humanity. 
like a human biographer or poet or historian. Uh, Peter captures this dual nature of Scripture in his letter to the churches. He writes, For the prophecy, okay, as in the Old Testament Scripture, never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And in the original Greek, it's a word picture of a sailboat being carried along by the wind. The idea is human beings were carried along by the wind of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Last week, we looked at what Paul wrote. And he said, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So notice the beauty and the mystery around the nature of scripture. Now, I want to give you guys an illustration around that language of God breathed and kind of how it works. And be, let, me, let me kind of set, set, set this up for you this way. Um, my favorite band of all time is... Nice job, guys. And my favorite U2 song is Where the Streets Have No Name. Okay? So several years ago, several years ago, Jen and I were gifted some tickets to go see U2 down at CenturyLink. And you guys, it was like the most amazing thing. Um, Now, what I want to do is I want to show you guys a clip from a U2 concert with my favorite song. Uh, This is not from our show at Century League. This is is from Boston. But what I want you to do in watching this is to pay careful attention to the guitar player. Does anybody know the guitar player's name from U2? The Edge. How filthy is that? The edge. Okay, so, so this, this little, this is like the intro. The, my favorite part of the whole Where the Streets Have No Name is the intro, that guitar riff at the beginning. Okay, so this is, the edge is playing the guitar riff. Bono is praying because he just came out of singing a song called 40, which is based on Psalm 40, and it's kind of like a worship song. So they've just finished this worship song, and the whole crowd is saying how long, how long to God to come and, and bring justice to our world. It's a, the most amazing thing. And Bono is kind of leading that, and then he kind of goes into this prayer, and here's the edge playing this guitar riff. Oh my gosh, you guys. This gives me chills. Shut off the house lights. I want a full experience of this thing, and let's, let's roll this bad boy. Oh, 
You guys, if you do not think that's awesome, you need awesome lessons. And some of you might be like, okay, but uh, what in the world does that have to do with, well, I think we're talking about the Bible. Well, the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human. And we go, well, how in the world does that work? What, what, is, that, what is that like? Well, one way to think of it is this. It's like music played by a master musician. And then when you, hear the, when you hear music that sounds like heaven coming into your ear, is that music coming from the instrument or the musician? Well, the answer is yes, right? It's coming from both. So with where the streets have no name, is that heavenly guitar riff coming from the edge or his guitar? Well, the answer is yes, it's both. So whenever brilliant music is played, and if you don't think that's brilliant, you can leave right now. Okay, whether it's, whether it's violin or guitar or piano or saxophone or, you know, I don't know, a recorder from a fifth grader, what, what you are, are hearing is both the musician and the instrument. And there is an intelligence and there's an artistry and a skill and a will that is coming from outside the instrument, but you see it's coming through the instrument. And yet that instrument, and here's the thing, the instrument will always stay true to itself. Like even Jimi Hendrix never made a guitar sound like a pipe organ. His guitar sang with sound, but it was still a guitar. It did not become a violin or an oboe or a trumpet in his hands. In the same way, the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human. The breath of God flows through the instrument, okay, the writer, like Louis Armstrong's breath through a trumpet. The trumpet makes sweet music, but it is still a trumpet. So it might be helpful to think of it this way. Okay, God breathed through the instrument, through the instruments that were Moses and David and Peter and Paul and Luke and John and on and on to make the sound of Scripture. And by the way, um, when Jen and I went to the U2 concert down at CenturyLink, um, Lenny Kravitz was the opener. Any of you like Lenny Kravitz? That was pretty good. And it was like an hour and a half long or something like that. And then they had to switch sets. And then U2 came out and they played for like three hours. So we're like two and a half hours into this. And guess what I had to do? Huh? Yes. And it, as much as I love U2, it was becoming unpleasurable. 
And so I was gone, you guys, I was gone like four minutes, and guess what I missed? The intro to Where the Streets Have No Name. I am walking out of the restroom, I, I'm in the tunnel, and I'm walking as fast as I can without looking weird, and, and, and I hear that riff in, echoing through CenturyLink coming into the tunnel, and I'm just like, no! I'm running out there. It's crazy. So if you two come to town again and anyone wants to gift us, you guys, the whole pee thing is so inconvenient. And it's been a problem for me my whole life. I, I've missed, I've almost missed like several huge events. I almost missed Brooklyn's birth. I was gone like 60 seconds. Okay, that's another story. I've totally digressed. The Bible is a library of writings that are both human and divine. Okay, and then the next part is that together tell a unified story. Now, the, the Bible's filled with all kinds of stories, and they come through narrative and poetry and in many different literary styles. And there's just like, if you read it, there's story after story after story in Scripture. But through all of it, this is the thing we need to see, through all of it, there is one central unified story being told. The beginning of the library says, in the beginning... And the second to last line of the library says, I am coming soon. The Bible is one panoramic, unified story. And if you miss this, then you, you can easily miss the larger story that's at work. You can get lost in one of the smaller stories, one of the micro stories, and miss the greater picture. Um, Tim Keller says it this way, and I, and I like this. He says, any of you know Tim Keller? Yeah, oh yeah. He says, the reason for our confusion over the Bible is that we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live our lives. It is not. And if you know Tim Keller with his like booming, it is not. Rather, it comprises a single story telling us how the human race got to its present condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, has come and will come to put things right. So the Bible is a library of writings that are both human and divine that together tell one unified story. And this is really, you guys, this is one of the great challenges in teaching the Bible to kids, like in a kid's program. To take stories like David and Goliath or the story, beautiful story of Esther that's just brilliant literature or the story of, of Noah, these incredible works of literary art that contain complex theology but that in many published children's curriculums get reduced to a one-point lesson that has something to do with obey your parents. And you guys, this is, this is why I am so grateful for Emily Callan and Jen and many others of you that have contributed to our children's curriculum because you guys, they are brilliant at putting the heart of Scripture into kid language, and that matters a lot. And it's not easy because when you think about it, the stories are deep, sophisticated literary insights into the nature of the human condition, the nature of God, and the nature of reality itself. And this is why, shocking, the Bible is sometimes very hard to understand. And why at times it feels like the, the micro stories are so strange. Many of the stories don't have tidy, like a tidy little moral for us to take away. They're, they're complex and go a lot of weird directions. 
And, and for many of us, we're just not used to stories like this. Okay, people who, who are in the business of story, like movie makers and authors and, and people who do that kind of thing, they sometimes differentiate between two different kinds of story plots. First, you have what you could call a commercial plot. Okay, whether that would be film or literature or TV or whatever. The idea is that the author has a, a main character that you, you're rooting for, and they just keep throwing problems at them. They, they knock them down, and then they get back up. And they knock them down, and then they get back up. And they knock them down, and they get back up. Okay, this is Luke Skywalker rising up to defeat Darth Vader. This is William Wallace uniting Scotland from English oppression. This is the Hunger Games. This is Harry Potter. This is pretty much every Marvel movie. This is the Shawshank Redemption. This is most sports movies. Okay, this is, is Rudy who just wanted to play football. Where? Notre Dame. And everyone, everyone, especially his father, said he could never do it. But he studied and he studied and he studied and he worked and he worked and he got into Notre Dame. And then somehow, in a like just crazy circumstance, he walks onto the Notre Dame football team and he gets killed and beat up and maimed in practice every day just as a scout player with no hope of ever suiting up or playing in a game. But at the, the very last game of his senior year, the team talks the coach into allowing Rudy to suit up and they get such a huge lead that at the end of the game, there's one play left. There's like 10 seconds left. And, the, and so the, the team starts chanting, right? Rudy, 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 Rudy. And the crowd picks up on it. They're like, what? And then they pick it up and the crowd is chanting, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. And they put him in there and he doesn't even know where to go. He just runs on the field. He's like, what am I supposed to do? And they hand the ball to the running back and Rudy breaks through the line and he makes the tackle. And the whole team and the whole stadium goes nuts and they pick him up and they're running him off the field on their shoulders. You guys, it's so good. How many of you haven't seen that? Go home today. Okay. Rudy. That's a commercial plot. By the way, it's a true story. But there's also what's called a literary plot, which is more about the inner journey. It's complex, nonlinear. And oftentimes, the ending is a letdown. Like, you get to the end of a novel with a literary plot, and it doesn't end. It's just the the last page. And you keep waiting like, wait, wait, what's going to happen? But it's just over. And it's vague. And sometimes it's hopeful, but it's all unclear. Have you guys noticed that most of the stories in the Bible are not commercial? The, the Bible doesn't read like Greek mythology. They are literary. We love to tell the heroic stories like David and Goliath. But often, we isolate those stories from the rest of the story. David did a whole bunch of other stuff. Did you know that? I mean, go and, go and read the story of David's life from beginning to end. Like, after Goliath, he lives for years in hiding under oppression in caves down by the Dead Sea. Horrendous, 120 degrees. And then he becomes king eventually, but he has an affair. And then he commits murder to cover up his affair, and it all gets really ugly. And there's all this dysfunction in his family because he takes on multiple wives. I don't recommend it. <laughs> and then 
it ends with power dynamics with one of his sons. They actually go to war, and David's army is victorious, and his son is killed. And when David gets the news that his son has died, he falls down weeping, which is a real turnoff to his commanding officers who risked their lives pursuing him at David's order. And so he loses all their respect. I mean, there's all this political violence and chaos. And in the very end, David is sleeping with a young woman. And as an old, bitter man, he calls for his son Solomon to come in. And he causes Solomon to promise to get revenge on David's emotional wound from something else that happened decades earlier. We don't read that part to the children. Like right now, my, my, my Bible plan has me reading through Kings and Chronicles. And um, there's, there's this great story of, of King Asa. I mean, most of the king stories are pretty short, but this one's like lengthy. It's this epic story of, of revival. Like Asa, he loves God. And, he, and he, the whole nation of Israel turns back to God under Asa's leadership. It is epic. Okay, but then in the last chapter of the story or last couple of paragraphs, he has a conflict with one of the main prophets of Israel and he puts the prophet in prison because he's just mad at him. And then he has a hard heart toward God. And then in the very last words of the story, this crazy story, we read this. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. Okay. Though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from his physicians. Then in the 40, 41st year of his reign, Asa died and rested with his ancestors. Isn't that inspiring? I mean, it's like, um, okay, God, like, what is the, what's the inspiring part of, of this story? You know, great, great man does great things, and then it all ends bad. And you think about it, you go, why are, why are so many of the stories in the Bible like this? Like, unclear, non-climactic, complex, a bit of a bummer. Because life is like this. Life is like this. Real life doesn't work or feel like a commercial plot. Real life doesn't feel like a Marvel movie. And if it does, and you feel like it does, then you're here and you haven't reached adulthood yet, and it will not last. <laughs> Just here to encourage you all. Like from the inside, life feels like a literary journey. But while many of the micro-stories end tragically, while many of the micro-stories are confusing and unresolved, the point we're supposed to see is the unified macro-story of the Scriptures is not unresolved at all. It's beautiful, and it's inspiring, and it resolves to completion. And that leads us to the final piece of our definition. The Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. Um, we read last week where Jesus said to the Pharisees, you, you guys study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, he says to them. Uh, maybe you guys have come across the, the, this adage, you, you, like this adage that, you know, Jesus is on every page. I'm um, talking about the scriptures as a whole. And, and and there, there is some truth to that. I mean, there is some, but, 
But that can also be a little bit dangerous because people will try to turn every little story into an allegory about Jesus. And that can lead to all sorts of really weird interpretations. But what's right about this impulse is that on every page of scripture, it is a literary step in the direction of Jesus. Every page is a step toward Jesus coming to make all things new. And when you look at the larger unified story of the Bible, you realize Jesus is the climax and the center of not only the library, but of reality itself. Everything else orbits around Jesus. So what is the Bible? Okay, back to our whole definition. The Bible is a library of writings that are both divine and human that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. And so if that's what the Bible is, then let's come back to, well, then what is the Bible for? And last week we said that we read Scripture not just for information, but for what? For formation. We, we read it to hear God's voice speak to us in a personal way and, and then to be changed by that, to be grown into the kind of people that God wants us to become. So if we come to it, not just to, to use the Bible to help us achieve our goals, if we come not just looking to find what we already believe, but if we come with an open hand and we come with an open heart, then the Holy Spirit can form us through Scripture. And with that end goal in mind, Scripture engages us through the power of story. Like so much of the Bible is story. It's not just a manual of, of instructions for living. It, it comes to us mostly in the form of story. And stories, as it turns out, like really, really matter. Here's what I mean. As human beings, we all, we all like have a story, a narrative, by which we make sense of and find meaning in the complexity of human existence. We all do. We are all bent to ask the biggest human questions. Everybody asks them. Like, who are we? What, what does it mean to be human? What is the meaning and purpose of life? What's gone wrong in this world and how do, how do we fix it? All of those are questions of story. And historically, the word used to describe the stories that we live by is religion, right? But that word has really fallen out of favor in our culture. Do any of you want to be religious, right? Most of us think as, uh, of religion as this, as, as like a belief in God or the supernatural. But that actually is not an academic definition because it's way too narrow. It doesn't work on some of the biggest religions in the world. For example, Buddhism doesn't really have a category for God. Buddhism isn't about a personal God or the supernatural. It's more like self-help for life. So here's a better definition for religion that comes again. This is from Tim Keller. And I think this is really good. It's really inclusive. He says, religion is a set of beliefs that explain what life is all about, who we are, and the most important things human, human beings should spend their time doing. By that definition, followers of Jesus are definitely religious, whether you like it or not. But so are agnostics. So are Buddhists. So are atheists. So are Darwinian materialists. Progressivism and social activism and career, uh, careerism are all a kind of religion. 
They are stories to make sense of who we are, what life is about, what's wrong, how we fix it, and what is the point of life. The question is not, do we have a story or are we religious? The question is, what story or religion do we live by? Guys, everybody lives by some kind of story. Everybody. Some kind of religion. So let's just recognize the story you trust and live by will shape the person you become. And this is where the Bible comes in. Consistent interaction with Scripture reshapes the story we live by. When I, when I go to Scripture time and time again, I'm reminded, oh yeah, I'm reminded again and again, this is the story. This is what it means to be human. This is how the world works. This is who God is. This is the kind of stuff that matters most. This is the story that I'm being invited to live into. So, so how do we let the story of Scripture form us? Well, we said last week, we come to it with the right heart posture, one that's open and one that's teachable. But also, we need to come to it consistently and in different ways. And so often when we, when we think of engagement with the Bible, I think many of us have a very narrow view. And the view is that it's, it's me sitting by myself in the quiet with my Bible or my phone with a great app or whatever. But you guys, that's, that's actually a very American way to think about it. Now think about this. Prior to Tyndale, and actually many years after that, nobody had a copy of the scriptures to read themselves. In the time of Jesus, that's what the synagogue was for. It was, it was scripture in the context of community. Nobody had their own library for their own scrolls. Okay, they were at the synagogue. So they would come together in community to read and discuss them. This 20-minute this morning quiet time with Scripture, it was not a thing. They memorized Scripture, and they recited it, and they prayed for sure, and they may have done that as a regular part of their day, maybe even in the morning, but most interaction with Scripture came inside the context of community. And in the days of, of Tyndale, most people were illiterate still. So even after there was an English translation of the Bible, most people engaged and encountered it in community. Now that does not mean, okay, I need everyone's eyes on this. That does not mean that reading it in a regular way on your own is bad. Please do not hear me saying that. Okay, as a pastor, I am not saying that. But when you think about it, community has always been really Important, reading and discussing the Bible in community. This last week um, in our life groups, where the, all the groups are kind of discussing this sermon series and using it for the basis of what we're doing. And so in life groups, we asked two questions. How would you describe your current relationship with the Bible? And how has your relationship with it changed or morphed over the last several years? And right now, I lead three groups. Some of you are like, you're amazing. I know. I, I, I lead three groups right now. Two of them are online. And you guys, I heard a ton of responses. And I was actually blown away to hear how many of you guys, okay, you guys and you guys actually do read scriptures regularly. Like you've developed a rhythm and a routine or a cadence for reading it on your own. And for many of you, it is actually coming more and more to life for you over the last few years. 
And I was, I was, I was a little bit surprised how many of you uh, that's the case, where your relationship with Scripture is, it is growing and it's deepening. Like, that's what we're trying to do here. So I, that was encouraging. But I want us to recognize that there are actually many ways to engage Scripture. You engage it when you come to church or you watch online. I mean, hopefully there's a reading and some sort of explanation of Scripture. Hopefully that's kind of what our sermons are. Also, you engage it when you listen to worship music that is based upon it. You're engaging it. In fact, that can be a very deep, reflective, personal engagement. It can move your soul and it can speak to you powerfully through music. You engage it when you go to your life group. Like you read it and you talk about it together. And then, of course, you can engage it all by yourself in a variety of ways. But, but one of my goals as a leader of this church is to expand and deepen how we as individuals and as a community engage it. I want us to encounter it in a way that truly forms us. And one thing that's really helpful in that process is to engage it in several different ways. So throughout this five-week series, each week as groups process this stuff, I'm giving the life group leaders different ways to lead their group into a, an engagement with Scripture. And last week was a, mes- a message on heart posture towards Scripture, like slowing down and really letting it form us, reading it not just for information, but again for formation. So last week, our groups used a very ancient practice called Lectio Divina, okay, which is Latin for divine word or divine reading. And it is a way that's been used for a long, long time and is widely used today of slowing down to reflect on Scripture in a personal way. It's a a deep personal reflection on a bite-sized passage. Um, One of our leaders can never remember Lectio Divina, and so she just calls it Danny DeVito. (laughs) And that works. I would never want to embarrass that person, so I won't give you her name, but her initials are Emily Cowan. (laughs) God bless you, Emily. Okay, so the Lectio Divino, or Danny DeVito, whatever you want to call it, (laughs) is deep thinking on a small passage, like a bite-sized passage. This week, I want us to try another approach to Scripture together. There is something about hearing large portions of Scripture in one hearing. And we, we often break scriptures into small bite-sized chunks of like 8 to 20 verses. And that, that's all really good. That can be really good. But if that's the only way that you ever encounter scripture, you can really miss stuff. I mean, when most of the literary works of scripture were written, they were not intended to be read that way. They were intended to be read as a whole. And so if you only ever read them in small bites, it limits you a little bit. I remember years ago, uh, when I went to see Forrest Gump in the movie theater, man, okay, right after you watch Rudy. Uh, I, I had not heard anything about the movie. It was brand new. It's just come out. And, and a friend was like, hey, you want to go see a movie? And I'm like, sure, let's just meet up at the theater. And so we're there. And, and the friend was like, well, you know, let's, what, how about Forrest Gump? I'm like, what is that? And it was like, well, it's a new Tom Hanks movie. I'm like, sweet, I like Tom Hanks. So, so I'm like, well, what's it all about? And they're like, I don't know. It's just it's the new Tom Hanks thing. So we go in, and you guys, after what is it? That movie's a long movie. It's like three hours. Prepare yourselves. I walked out of the theater amazed. I mean, it was funny. 
It was clever. It was inspiring. I, I felt like it was just cinematic art. Now, imagine if I never watched the movie actually all the way through. I only read short quotes or watched 30-second YouTube clips of it. They might still move me. I mean, it's that good. My mom always said, right? But I, 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 would, be, I would be missing something. And, and in the same way, it's really powerful to read or hear large portions of Scripture sometimes and not do everything in a little soundbite. When I, when I was in seminary prepping for ministry, I took a class on the book of Romans. And the first day of class, our professor didn't teach anything. He like opened up the door, gave everybody a copy of the book of Romans with no, like no commentary, no notes, no nothing, just Romans. I think it was a New International Version, and, we had a, and he said, here's what you're going to do for the next two and a half hours, because Romans is a long book. Read the entire thing from start to finish. And the first day, he didn't teach anything. I'm like, well, that's, you, you shouldn't even get paid for that, you know. <laughs> but he just had us read the entire book of Romans to ourselves in one sitting, and then there were follow-up questions about our experience with it. And you guys, I was blown away. Um, I, I had never read Romans in that way. I had only ever read it a few verses at a time. And that day, reading it in one sweeping, one sitting, there were stuff, connections that I made, stuff that I saw that I had never seen before. It was so cool. So this week, I'm asking our groups to try that. We're all going to read the book of Romans. Okay, yeah. What? Do we not love the Bible? Okay, yeah, no, that would be insane. Um, so I'm thinking, like, let's try with something a little shorter. Uh, we're going to do the book of Philippians. But I'm, I'm going to ask each group to read that together in one sitting. And if you're not in a group and you go, well, I, then, then just try it at home. I don't know how long it would take, depending on how, long, you know, how fast you read, but maybe 20 minutes or so. And just allow the main ideas to, to, to flow and to sweep over you. Take it for what it is, okay? Don't, don't try to go into it with all these expe expectations of how the angels are going to sing and the Holy Spirit is going to descend with fire on the room and all of that. Just, just let this ancient work of literary spirituality speak to you and see if you hear something that encourages you or inspires you or challenges you or reshapes your thinking in some way. But do it by taking it all in in one sitting. And I think it might be, it might feel very different for some of you in a very cool way. All right, I'm going to pray and then invite Tony and Jen back up. God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for scripture. I thank you what it is, for what it's meant to me and the way that it is, it is becoming truly a treasure, just a, a deeper and deeper treasure for so many in our church. And I know we're all in different places with it. And so for wherever we are, God, I pray that you would help us to take the next step toward you in it. I pray that you would help us to engage it and, and learn to, to read it and just put it together with greater and greater understanding so that we are formed by it, so that we actually look more and more and more like Jesus.